Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. I'm Andy, one of the pastors at Manchester Vineyard Community Church in Manchester's beautiful historic North End. And this week on the podcast, we're starting a new series called Ready for Your War, Spiritual Battle in the Everyday. We're taking the next few weeks to set the table, so to speak, and define what the battle is about, who's involved, and where we fit in to God's kingdom purposes. So buckle up, we're going to potentially rattle some cages, upset some apple carts, and explore aspects of the unseen realm that you may never have been exposed to before. Thanks for listening, and when you're done, we'd love to hear from you. Take a moment to drop us a line at amen at manchestervineyard.com. Enjoy! So we are going to start our new series, our winter series this week called Ready for Your War and uh, Spiritual Battle in the Everyday. That's what we're going to focus on. And I am going to rattle your cages today. All right? I'm going to need you. I'm going to need you to, to, um, to forget everything you've heard about certain elements of the world that exists outside of our own. That is the spiritual realm. I'm going to need you to put those things aside for now because I'm going to take you on a little bit of a journey over the next three weeks that is going to upset some apple carts. All right? I just know that it's going to. And, uh, you know, and at some points during these conversations and during these these messages, you're probably going to tilt your head sideways like a dog that has heard a very high-pitched noise. And, and that's okay. I'm ready for that, all right? Well, what I want to do is I want to um, give you a solid foundation from which we can then move on and talk about things like spiritual warfare in your marriage, spiritual warfare in your job, Spiritual warfare in your relationships, in your parenting, in transitions that you go through in your life, in so many of these common situations that everyone experiences. But in order to do that, I really do need to disabuse you of some myths that, uh, or some misunderstandings or some, at least give you some new information to consider that you may not have considered before. And uh, I want to do that because I want to uh, have a, a church filled with people who are not afraid of their Bibles. Not afraid of their Bibles. Um, here's the thing. We live in a very, very, very uh, materialistic world. And that is to say, not that Everyone loves to buy things, which they do. That's not necessarily the materialism I'm talking about. I'm talking about a worldview that affects every single one of us every single moment that we are awake. We're surrounded by a worldview called materialism. It's the idea that there is nothing other than the material, what you can see and sense and taste and touch, okay? Only those things which are immediately evidential to your senses uh, exist. And those things that we talk about that are not immediately picked up by your five senses 
don't exist, right? That's materialism. Materialism is a worldview that came into uh, great um, acceptance uh, in right around the uh, 1700s 1800s during a period of history called the what? The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. The Enlightenment embraced an approach to understanding the world called evidentialism. All right? I only think or consider or, 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 um, or accept those things that I have evidence for. Clear, inarguable evidence. This is a chair. I can sit in the chair because I've tried it so many times. Right? Evidentially, the chair holds me up. And therefore, only those things that I can provide evidence for are useful, actual, and real. Okay? And this is a problem for Western Christians because uh, really the, the, we are struggling in our faith to hold on to a worldview that is not materialism. It's the opposite of materialism. It's, it transcends materialism and it includes a realm of existence that we often call the supernatural or the supermaterial or the transmaterial, right? Transcending the material. That's where that word comes from. And so we need to do some work that's going to properly orient us toward the supernatural worldview of the Bible. The, the book that you have in your hand, it's not a natural book. It did not come merely through natural circumstances. Amen? Amen. Everyone agrees with that? I hope that what we have, at least if you're a Christian here this morning, my hope is that you believe that the Bible was inspired. Inspired. What word, what root word is in the middle of the word inspire? Spirit. Spirit. Right. That, that the Bible is, is, originates with the Spirit and it comes through natural means. Okay, so when we talk about how the Bible is inspired, we, what we don't mean is that someone sat down one time uh, and they all of a sudden lost leave of their senses. They took leave of their senses and started writing. And all of a sudden, the book of Jeremiah showed up and they said, wow, where have I been for the last five hours? This is wonderful reading. Right? That's not what happened. It's, they weren't channeling a, a spirit and, and, and writing. No, God actually utilized the time, the place, the experiences, the education or lack thereof of the people who wrote the scriptures, and he used all of that, and he knew exactly what they had been through, what they had experienced, and how they would write, the vocabulary that they would use, how they were influenced by outside worldviews other than God's own influence. He knew all of that, and he put the scriptures together in this way, inspired the scriptures to be written in this way. They used their language, they used their context, they used their understanding, and God spoke through them the words that we read in the scriptures. So as we start off here, what I need to do is I need to sort of set the table, okay? We need to set the table, and we need to talk a little bit about God's created worlds, okay? We have the universe, right? But then there's the created world that God inhabits, all right? He certainly inhabits the material world. 
He inhabits this place that we call, you know, that we call reality around us, but he also inhabits another world. It is filled by him just as this world is, but it also contains other types of entities, personalities, creatures, okay, that were created by God to live in that world. Just as human beings were created to exist in the material world, these other beings were created to exist in a non-material world. And when we talk about spiritual warfare, what can tend to happen is that most Christians will break down the question into something like this. They say, there's God and angels, and there's Satan and demons. And that's spiritual warfare, isn't it? Isn't that the, what we think about? We, we think about, okay, we need, to, we need to pray to God. We need to accept that there are angels, but we really don't know what they do. Anyone ever seen an angel? I'm not talking about the, the, the GIF, the little picture of a, of a cloud formation in the sky on the internet. That's not what I'm talking about. We sort of look at angels and we go, I see them in the Bible, but I'm not quite sure I've ever met one. I'm not quite sure I've ever seen one. I'm not exactly sure how they're relevant to my life right now. Um, Satan, I'm very aware of. We talk about him, and he was on Saturday Night Live, and the church lady would say, "Mm, Satan, right? Dana Carvey, remember that, right? And, uh, and then we also know about demons. Demons show up very, very strongly in the Gospels, and so we're very familiar with, with them. We need to cast them out, right? That's right. And one of the signs, Jesus says, that follows, that will follow those who believe is that they will cast out demons. That's right. They'll have authority over demons. And, but this is, a very, this is a very basic breakdown that most people adhere to. It's functional... You ever heard the word, okay, it's serviceable? Like, he's a serviceable first baseman, right? You don't want a, just a serviceable first baseman, right? He can catch the ball if it's thrown his direction, right? He's a serviceable first baseman. But as soon as the ball goes outside and he needs to make that stretch, you know the stretch that first basemen do? That, that one where they have their foot barely touching the bag and they're way bent over sideways and they're way stretched out? He's not going to get that one. He's not going to get that. Serviceable first basemen don't get that one. This idea, God, angel, Satan, demons, is serviceable, but it's, it's not full. It's not whole. It's missing a lot of pieces and elements. And uh, another idea that people have is they might add the human element to it. They might say, okay, there's God and angels and humans who serve on their side, And then there's Satan and demons and humans who serve on that side. And what they do is they set up God and Satan. You can can see this coming, right? Like God and Satan are like equal forces against one another. And they're not. God and Satan are in no way equal. There, There are certain attributes that they share. For example, they're both spirits. That's an attribute that they both share. They both share intelligence. Satan's not a moron, okay? They both share certain attributes, but 
God and Satan are not going at something like two boxers in a ring who are pound for pound going to be able to fight one another. This war that we find ourselves in and the battle that we need to think about is much more complex than that. And Satan does not measure up, okay? In our, in our ideas, anyone ever play Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Anyone ever get to the end where you actually fight Mike Tyson in that video game? I know, I know, I know all you old guys, you're not gonna really connect with this one, but you're this little guy, and Mike Tyson in the end is this big guy, right? And you can't beat him. He's too fast, he's too strong, one punch and you're out, okay? Uh, that's more accurate uh, to what we have here between God and the entity that we call Satan, all right? And uh, we have angels and we have demons, all right? So, and then they get sparred off against one another. We think that angels are the are the servants of God, which they are, and demons are the servants of Satan, which, you know, they are, and that they go, they sort of go at it, that's their level, and then we humans are, are, are going at it as well, and we, th- this is sort of how we're stacked up against one another, and, but this is really how it is. Satan has like little rockets that he sends up and attacks, and then, and then this, is, this is generally, this is how God responds. <laughs> that's how this works. That's what is going on here. And I hesitated to use the missile imagery because of what's been going on geopolitically um, in, the last, in the last week and a half or so. But there you have it. It was, the, it was the, best, the best I could come up with. All right. But the problem with this is that this is still basic. It's very simplistic. Okay, Spiritual warfare and the battle that you go through every day with your spouse and with your kids and with your job and with your money and with all of it. It's much more complex than that. I will tell you this. This is, this is anecdotal, so you can choose to trust me on this or just say that, well, that's been your experience. My experience is different. This has been my experience. My experience has been that about 95 to 98% of the time, when someone says, I'm being attacked by the enemy, What they really mean to say is, I've made some really poor decisions and now I'm reaping the consequences of those things. That's generally what they mean. Now they want to to offload the responsibility for their decisions because they want to blame the enemy and they want to to blame shift, which, which humans are so good at, right? What did Adam do in the garden? The woman thou gavest me, she gave me the fruit and I, you know, well, and she forced it down my throat. There was a gun involved. I, I had to do it. But they want to blame shift. They want to say, the enemy, I'm being attacked. I'm being attacked. I'm being attacked by the enemy. And what they really mean is, I've made some poor decisions. I wish someone else would bail me out. In fact, I wish God would bail me out just miraculously by snapping his finger so that I don't have to actually learn anything in this process. And yet, I can be freed from the results of my decisions. Yeah. All right? Very, very small percentage of the time, like I said, maybe somewhere between 2 and 5% of the time, it's a legitimate attack, all right? And the way to distinguish between what's a real attack and what's just you making crap up, okay, is, is this. Am I, am I following in the steps of righteousness, all right, honestly? Am I, am I mocking God? It says, the scriptures are very clear, 
Uh, don't be fooled. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that's what he'll reap. So take a, a good look at what you're reaping. I've got relational discord. I've got financial discord, right? I've, I've got emotional discord in my life. Take a look at what you're reaping, and God says what you're reaping is evidence of what you're sowing, all right? That little diatribe came with the price of admission. You're welcome. I'm here to help. But what I want to do is as we start this series, I want to give you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. And what that's going to mean is it's going to mean like taking a sip from a fire hydrant. Okay? You will get water in your mouth and you'll get completely soaked in the process. And I'm sorry. <laughs> that's just the way fire hydrants work. And, uh, and I want to give you the whole counsel of God on something that the Bible calls the whole counsel of of God, all right? You see the play on words there. See, I'm, I went to public school. I can rhyme and alliterate at the same time. No, but what we have in the Bible is we have something very interesting called the divine counsel, all right? This is something that gets wholly overlooked in most Christian, of most Christian life and Bible study in general. It just gets overlooked because we're not in, remember, we're in a different period of time and history surrounded by a different worldview than the ancient Israelites were. This idea of the divine counsel appears all over the Old Testament. It's almost ubiquitous, in fact, in how it appears all over the Old Testament. What I want to do today is in setting the table and setting the foundation is I want to give you an understanding of what this actually is. Just, it's going to introduce you to the idea that there's something more than God and angels and Satan and demons in the spiritual realm that is going to help us as we move forward to understand more fully what, how God is doing things and why things are happening to us and around us as we try to live our Christian lives righteously and faithfully before God and, uh, uh, and to do that with uh, utmost faithfulness to him. If you have your Bible this morning, what I want to do is start there in Psalm 82. Don't worry, I've only got a few slides left. Psalm 82 Psalm 82, verse 1. And I want to show you something here. God has taken his place, is what it says in Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly, he says to them, and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And the psalmist narrates at this point, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And God continues, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and, like, and fall like any prince. And the psalmist then, then shouts to God, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. You need to first understand that the reason for 
the spiritual war that you are in is because God is trying to draw the nations back to himself. God is interested in having the entire world filled with the knowledge of him. That's what he's trying to do. It's not about you. It's not about you. All right? We have a father who cares, and that's really good. Amen? I'm really glad I can turn to my father in heaven in times of great need and distress and even times of small need. He cares, but it's not about me. It's not about me. God has a much bigger thing that he is trying to do and trying to accomplish and in the end will accomplish that he has invited us into to participate in. And I'll, I'll wait to bookend that statement at the end of the sermon today. But if we go back to Psalm 82 verse 1, what we see is that God takes his place in the divine counsel. Those two words, divine counsel, that has been argued about and debated by scholars throughout the centuries. And what it means is divine counsel. Who has a different translation in their Bible, right? What do you have, Dylan? Great assembly. The great assembly. What do you have? Congregation of the mighty. Congregation of the mighty. All right. The problem, that's King James. Oh, yeah. The problem of... Uh, <laughs> And, and that's NAS, NIV, all right. So the problem with not translating this as divine counsel is it obscures the true meaning of this text. This is what I mean about not afraid of your Bibles. Um, there are translation committees who put together the text of the different Bible translations and they go with the very best that they think is useful for their translation. The problem is that many times they end up obscuring clear passages that shouldn't be obscured. You see, a great assembly could be anything. Could be a group of people, could be a group of uh, kings, could be a group of anything, a great assembly. Right? A, a group, an assembly of the mighty. Well, David had mighty men. Is that what he's talking about? I'm confused. What is this? The key here is actually found in the second part of Psalm 82, verse 1. It says that in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Now, one of the big uh, mistakes that people have made throughout the years with this verse is that they go, well, God is actually, his, his divine counsel is actually just the Trinity. Right? Has anyone ever heard this explanation of a divine counsel at all? So some people say, well, this is actually just the Trinity. He's sitting amongst the Trinity and he's talking to the Trinity at this point. The problem with that is that Psalm 82 is a psalm of judgment against corruption. And I don't know about you, but I'm not comfortable thinking about the Spirit and the Son of God, the divine, unique, one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, being judged for corruption. I'm not comfortable with that. You might be, but I think it's heretical. Just throw that out there. God is sitting in the midst of beings in this passage that have a specific function in the spiritual realm. All right? The word here used for gods and God is the same word, Elohim. Right? Elohim. Everyone's familiar if you've seen Hebrew, if you've been around the church at all and been around the Old Testament at all, you know that Elohim is a word for what? 
God. God is called Elohim tons of time throughout the Old Testament. The issue that we run into and why people get confused and get all weirded out and get all twisted up around the wording is that Elohim is not only used for God. Elohim is used in other capacities as well. We look at verse 6. And he says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. I thought there was only one son of the Most High. I thought there was only one God and one son of the Most High. Oh boy, Andy, you're teaching polytheism now. Hold on. Hold on. What God does is he has assigned certain functionality to certain members of the spiritual realm. And in fact, in other places in the scriptures, like Job 38, God questions Job. He says, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the stars sang, and when all of the sons of God shouted for joy? Were you there? He can't be talking about human beings. I mean, logic, do the math. He can't be talking about human beings as sons of God there, because why? There ain't no humans yet. He didn't lay the foundations of the earth. It's not even day one, people. He's just, the stars are there, and the sons of God, this group of divine beings, and I use the word divine loosely, it's a generic term, they are there shouting for joy. They're so excited about what God is doing. In fact, they're also there in another well-known passage to us, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says, let us... Let us make man in our image. This is the second part of the creation narrative that the Bible gives us where the sons of God appear. God turns to them, and like I would turn to a group of people and say, let's get pizza. Right? We're not all hopping in the car. We're not all giving our debit card to pay for it. Right? That's not what everybody's doing. I'm calling the pizza place, and I'm giving my... Uh, you know, financial information, and I'm going to pick the pizza up, or I'm going to exchange with the delivery guy, but how do I introduce the idea? I say, let's get some pizza, right? God does the same thing. Genesis 1.26, he says, for my next great, great performance, <laughs> let's make humankind. We'll make them like us. And what does the next few sentences say? And God created, right? The whole, the whole group of beings that were there didn't participate in that act. Just God did. Just like when I went and called the pizza, delivery, the pizza shop up, not everyone was on the phone with me, right? God's talking to a group of beings that have been there since before the creation was Made. They were there in the beginning. Job 38 says they were actually shouting for joy. Shouting for joy at the creation. And these beings are called Elohim right along with God. In Psalm 82, they're called Elohim. In Psalm 89, they're called Elohim. Psalm 89, verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness in the assembly of the Elohim. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the 
holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. There's some other beings involved here. In Psalm number 8, Psalm 8, verse 5, you have made man, talking about mankind, a little lower than the Elohim. He can't mean himself. God can't mean himself. We're not a little lower than God. God is infinitely above us. Amen? God is infinitely above all beings. I cannot make this clear enough because I don't want anyone thinking that what I just did was I equated something to God. There's nothing equal to God. There's no one equal to God. He is sovereign, high, king, ruler, benevolent despot over all things, real and possible. That's who God is. But what he does is he chooses. He chooses to do certain things in certain ways. And what we find out is in the Old Testament, the usage of the word Elohim really simply means a member of the spirit realm, a being that exists in the spiritual plane. That's what it actually means. And it's not because it's, a, it's used, it's not because of what the word technically means if you were to give it a dictionary definition. It's because of how it is used. So, if I say to you, hey, that's really cool. Right? Do I literally think the temperature is low on it? I might, depending on what I'm talking about. What if I'm talking about a popsicle? That's really cool. Am I talking about the flavor or the temperature? Could be either one. The meaning of the word is determined by the context in which it is found. That is what determines the meaning of this word. And it denotes, in this case, Elohim denotes not specific attributes. Right? We think of God. What do we think of? (laughs) All powerful. All present, right? Mighty, omnibenevolent, right? The, the, the ancient of days, right? It's that guy. It's that guy. It's, it's the guy that when Jesus says, hey, don't fear someone who can kill the body, but after killing the body can really do no more to you. Jesus says, fear him who after killing the body can actually do what? Can kill, <laughs> can assign you to hell. Fear that guy. And there's only one of them. What this means is that all spiritual beings are Elohim. God is Elohim. But not all Elohim are God. God is high. God is above. God is incomparable. Right? There is, we just read, there is none like him. Right? There is none like our God. Amen. Amen. All right. In the Old Testament, what we find is that Elohim is actually used in a number of different ways. It's used to describe Yahweh, the God of the Bible, thousands of times in the Old Testament. Thousands of times. Then it's used to describe the members of Yahweh's council. This group of beings that I've been focusing on now for the last 15 minutes, 20 minutes. It's also used to describe demons, which in the Old Testament, the word is not daimonion as it is in the New Testament. It's a different word, has a different meaning, specific meaning, but it's used to describe demons. Why? Because they occupy that spiritual plane. 
It's actually used in reference to the deceased Samuel. Everyone remember this story? Saul, he's like, expel all the witches except this one. I'll show a blind eye to this one. I'll keep this one in my back pocket for when I need her. And he goes, see, see the witch of Endor. <laughs> you thought Endor was a Star Wars word. Right? You were wrong. He goes to see the witch of Endor. And he says, what I need you to do is I need you to contact Samuel. And she's never seen Samuel. She's never met Samuel. She doesn't really know who Samuel is other than by reputation. But what happens? Samuel shows up when she contacts him. And this is weird for her because when she normally tries to contact the dead, what happens? Nothing. She talks to maybe an evil spirit, but it's certainly not the spirit of the dead person. But in this case, God releases Samuel from his rest to come back and talk to Saul and this witch. And it refers to Samuel as an Elohim. An Elohim. Now Samuel, I don't know, he's not God, right? I'm just making sure. I'm just trying to make sure that we're all clear. Samuel is not God, and yet he's called an Elohim. And the angels themselves, or the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is actually called an Elohim as well. In 1 Kings 22, we get a glimpse into how this council actually works. This is sort of funny. You might remember this story, 1 Kings 22. Let's see if I can find it. 1 Kings Chapter 22, starting in verse 13. The setup here is that a certain city has been overtaken by Syria, and the evil king of Israel, King Ahab, wants to go take it back. So Jehoshaphat, the king of, who is the king of southern Israel at the time, the king of the southern kingdom of Israel, he goes up and he visits Ahab, and he's like, are you sure we should do this? Attack Raboth-Gilead? Do you, do, you, do you really think that we should do this? Maybe we should consult some prophets. And Ahab calls all of his prophets, and they all say, Go, go, Ahab. You'll have wonderful time. You'll get Raboth-Gilead back. It'll be awesome. Victor victory is yours. And Jehoshaphat's uncomfortable with this. And he says, Don't you have a prophet of Yahweh around? These other prophets, I'm just, I'm not feeling it. Let's consult a prophet of Yahweh. What is Ahab's response? Anyone remember? Really? Do we really have to do that? I've got one around, but he always tells me what I don't want to hear. Do we have to listen to him? Do you really want to hear what he has to say? Jehoshaphat insists. They call Micaiah, the prophet of Yahweh. And uh, at first, Micaiah plays with them. Oh, yes, yes, Ahab, you'll be, go, go, Ahab. Since you're not going to accept what I ever have to say to you anyway, I might as well play along with this charade. That's his attitude. Then Ahab goes, no, 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 no. No, I know better than that. You're just telling me what I want to hear, aren't you? I implore you to tell me what Yahweh is saying. So Micaiah says, <laughs> so Micaiah says this. He says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. That's not a good way to start the word. Scattering, right? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you he wouldn't prophesy good concerning me? Didn't I tell you? I told you. And Micaiah responded, therefore, 
Hear the word of the Lord. This gets really nasty. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven, the divine council, the host of heaven, okay? Those are two synonyms. Standing beside him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? Die at Ramoth Gilead. So essentially, the Lord was like, it's time for Ahab to die. It's time for Ahab to die. He needs to go. And I need to know which one of you of my divine counsel will go and entice Ahab so that he'll go and be killed in this battle. That sounds really nasty, doesn't it? That sounds nasty. I don't like thinking about God in these ways. It makes me very uncomfortable. I get sweaty palms and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's unsettling in my stomach. I, I think I need a Tums. Anyway, I don't want to protect you from your Bibles. Remember that statement from earlier? And one of the spirits there, one of the heavenly hosts says, I will go. I will do it. I will entice Ahab. And the Lord says to him, okay, tell me how you'll do it. And the spirit responded by saying, what I'll do is I will put a false word in the mouth of his prophets. Now this, Micaiah is literally telling Ahab what went on so that his prophets would give him a false word. He's literally telling him what happened. He's giving him all the information. You ever tell someone exactly what you think will happen if they go and do something or make some decision and they don't listen to you? Yeah, of course, you're always right. You never do that, by the way. And the Lord, a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said, by what means? How will you do it? And this spirit said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Wait, this is part of the divine council. This guy's part of God's heavenly host. And he's saying that he's going to go and be a liar. This is really, what this should do is it should really stretch your concept of what God is willing to do for the execution of his purposes in the earth. That's what it should at least do. You should be very uncomfortable with this. I know I am. I will go out and I will be a lying spirit, a false spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And God said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, if God didn't agree with this, what would he have said? Okay, go sit down for a minute. We'll call on you next time. All right? Maybe raise your hand before... So I know that before, maybe raise your hand. No, God goes, invites his divine counsel into the decision-making process. Isn't that interesting? He invites his divine counsel, his heavenly host, these spirit beings that surround the throne of God into this decision-making process concerning one king, concerning one battle, concerning one thing that he wants to have done. It doesn't seem all that big in the grand scheme of things, does it? And yet he invites his counsel in. Who will go entice Ahab? Uh, I, 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 I will. I will. Okay, little, little, uh, little spirit being. What, how, you, how will you do it? Here's what I, I think I should do this. Sounds good. Go. This is what happens in this case. And when people get to this stage, they generally ask something like, Awesome, thank you. You're the best. They will generally ask questions like, why? Why? And what I generally want to respond with, and 
is, 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 well, why has he invited you in? Well, this is what God does. He brings together disparate and imperfect creatures that he knows are completely capable of messing the whole thing up. And he invites them in to participate with him in his great story and in his great plan. God, in this case, used divine counsel to execute his will. I want to quickly go over to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel is explaining something to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And Daniel is, uh, Daniel eventually, he interprets the second dream. But part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream goes like this. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the bee flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Everyone knows that Nebuchadnezzar went crazy, right? Acted like, a, like an animal and ate grass. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let his beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence, this is verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, which is another name for the divine counsel. The decision by the word of the holy ones. We've seen that phrase appear in the Psalms. To the end that the living, all people may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets over it the lowliest of men. God invites other beings into the decision-making process because it actually elevates his sovereignty. It doesn't discredit it. It doesn't tear it down. You are invited in to God's execution of his will and purposes in the earth. If you are a Christian, that is what he has called you to do. He's called you to enter in with him to execute his plan for the earth. That's your primary job. You are, remember what we talked in Ephesians a few months ago. What did Ephesians call all Christians? Saints, holy ones, same word. Paul, do you think he's telegraphing back to these psalm statements about this divine counsel? He's telegraphing back. He's saying, you are holy ones now. You've been invited into the great family, into the great council, into this great dynasty that God is putting together. That's who you are. Who else does the Bible call the sons of God? All y'all. B'nai Elohim. Everyone in this room. Now, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his, what? Only begotten son. Right, right. So there's only one son of God. I thought there's only one son of God. That's an unfortunate translation mishap. The word monogenes, only begotten, doesn't mean only begotten. It means one and only. Unique. It means unique. 
So there are many sons of God, just like there are many Elohim, but there's only one God. There's many sons of God, but there's one unique son of God. And we are being made into his what? His likeness. That's who you are. If you're a Christian this morning, as Jesse said earlier, you don't walk in shame and condemnation. Do you understand that? Do you know why? Because you have been invited into a great dynastic family. That's your identity now. Father God, Yahweh, has seen fit to impress the image of his son, his unique son, onto your image. And he is in the process of remaking you, making you over. Anyone remember that show? Make over, right? He's in the process of making you over. He's in the process of taking you from being on the side of his enemy, being a helper of evil in the earth, which you are if you're not in Christ. You are an enemy of God. And simply by faith, simply by activating trust in what Jesus Christ has done, you switch sides, and now you're on a journey, victory with him in the earth, spreading his glory and spreading his goodness and spreading his love and his grace, just like it was spread to you. That's what's happening in your life right now. Do you think the enemy doesn't want that to happen? That's right. We're going to talk about that next week. Hey there, Pastor Andy again. And I want to thank you for checking in with Manchester Vineyard by listening to this message today. We hope and pray that it has been a blessing to you and that it has served to point you in the direction of following Jesus wherever he may lead you. As always, if you would like to reach out to us, feel free to drop us a line at contact at manchestervineyard.com. And if you'd like to tell us about what you believe God is doing in your life, email us at amen at manchestervineyard.com. We hope to see you on an upcoming Sunday to give us an opportunity to serve you and your family. God bless you.